So I was up in uh, New England teaching for the weekend and there were some very poignant themes that came up in the questions and the really what people were caring about. And, I, and if I could capsulize them, it, when we're down or on ourselves, at war with ourselves, how do we find some peace? And when we're at war with others, how do we find some peace? And very much kind of tapped into what's going on in our society right now, and especially what I think these primaries have been shining a light on, which is how profoundly we collect around our identity, oppressed identity, or I'm, I'm the right one identity, or that's a bad person identity, and how either very consciously or not so consciously there's this dividedness and a sense of separation and on some level fueling, fueling war, fueling violence. And it's very clear that politics, in other words, how we operate in the society, our beliefs, our actions, how we, how we speak, how we act politically, is not in any way separate from the Dharma, from our inner experience and spiritual awakening. There's no difference so that if we have a deep meditation and we arrive in this beautiful, open, metta, loving-kindness, include everyone in our heart place, and then we, as I did the other night, are watching that show on um, the war, and I'm watching Rumsfeld, and I'm feeling this, like, that's the bad guy. And I'm, re- you know, and I'm just I'm sharing this because I really want to be real. That's me, my political self, not congruent. It's not bad, I'm not blaming myself, it's really natural. And I also think that anger has a healthy role, and this is what I want to talk to you about tonight and really reflect together on, which is how in a world that is filled with so much violation and so much pain, can we respond without creating more division and more hatred? The Dhammapada, the Buddhist texts say that hatred never ceases by hatred, but by love alone is healed, that this is the ancient and eternal law. And this is one of those, you know, we might not agree, but investigate. Is there ever a way that we can heal anything by hatred? And yet, it's part of what arises in us. There's a, a wonderful Native American teaching story, I've heard it in a lot of different versions, but in one of them, a Native American elder, a woman, is asked by her grandchild how she's come to be so loved and so revered. And she said, well, I have living within me, in my heart, there's two wolves, and one of the wolves is the wolf of love, and one of the wolves is the wolf of hate, and they're struggling. And so her grandson says, so which one's going to win, you know? And she says, well, whichever one I feed each day, you know? There's a simplicity to that that both deserves unpacking and also has some real truth in it, that it's part of our evolutionary survival equipment. I mean, we are designed to have within us both the 
tendency to affiliate. In other words, the architecture of our brain scans for likeness and difference. And we affiliate with a tribe and we're scanning to see who's not or in our tribe or who's in our tribe. And it's part of giving us reproductive advantage to take care of and, and be you know, cooperative with, to some degree at least, what we consider the us. And to have a wariness and a suspicion and an aggressiveness towards the them. That for millions of years there is enough scarcity and competition for resources and violence that that, that was the way we were designed in order to make it. You had to kind of hang in with your, with your clan. And so we have aggression wired into us and our brains still possess these ancient capabilities, these tendencies towards cooperation and aggression. And they're intensified by economic pressure and they're intensified by religious fervor. They get whipped up by the fears that those in control use of those are not us over there and they're going to cause us trouble and that whips it up even more. So narrow fear-based affiliations have become obsolete in terms of our survival as a planet. They're dangerous. That doesn't mean, and I'm going to talk about this more, that there's not healthy forms of affiliation that actually are part of spiritual awakening. It just means that the fear-based ones, that are that something's wrong with you, you're bad, that whip up the fear and the anger and the hatred, we can't afford it. So there's a phrase I've used a lot in beginning to examine our own experience and how we do this and it's the unreal other that we have a habit and we all do it especially when we're stressed of everyone out there is in some way a kind of two-dimensional unreal being like we don't get the subjectivity that you hurt the way I hurt and you're scared the way I'm scared and you want to love and feel love the way I want to feel love. We don't, we might mentally get it but it's not like we're aware of it. We're caught and not aware of that. And it becomes exaggerated by our stereotypes and we all carry them. In a way it's a quick way that the mind does things to navigate but it ends up having horrific consequences. We have stereotypes to do with race and gender and age and class and all sorts of other things that, that are a blinder. So we can't see that the one that's looking out there is the same awareness, the same heart, the same presence that's right here. We can't see it. So it becomes absolutely essential if we are practicing a spiritual path, a dharma of liberation, to be really honest with ourselves how that happens, how we create others out there. And it happens just when we're stressed, not when somebody's done anything in a big way, that everybody becomes either someone that can help me with what I need or is in the way and an obstacle or else irrelevant, one of those three categories. But they're not real beings. And then, of course, if we feel at all offended, boom, the whole deal flares up. 
One of my favorite examples of this was a woman that was returning from a retreat where she had done lots of metta, including everybody in her heart, but there she was at an airport and she was exhausted because she had had to switch planes and she, she sits down, buys a cup of coffee, a small package of cookies. She wants an unoccupied table, but somebody's at the table, she has to share it, and he's reading a paper, and she, she reads her paper, but then she becomes aware of somebody rustling, some rustling, and she notices behind her paper that this neatly dressed young man is helping himself to her cookies. <laughs> well, she doesn't want to make a scene, so she leans across and takes a cookie herself. A minute or so pass, more rustling. He's helping himself to another cookie. She had bought this pack of cookies, you know, so... By the time they're down to the last cookie, she's really angry, but still can't bring herself to say anything. And then the young man broke the cookie in two, pushed half of it to her, (laughs) ate the other half, and left. (laughs) Sometime later, when the public address system had called her to present her ticket, she was still fuming, and you can imagine what it was like for her when she opened her pocketbook and was confronted by her package of cookies. She had been eating his. (laughs) I love that story. (laughs) I share it whenever I have a chance because it's great. Now, I want to say that not, not every time that we're making an unreal other and projecting, I mean, sometimes people do all sorts of things, but it's amazing how much we slap on our reality. Amazing. And we do it to others, and on some level we do it, it's like, I'm in here and the world's out there. The whole world is other. Oscar Wilde, on his deathbed, was drifting in and out of consciousness. Once, when he opened his eyes, he was heard to murmur, this wallpaper is killing me. One of us has to go. (laughs) So, the other... So here's what's interesting, that we are, as I mentioned, very much rigged to, just for survival's sake, to discern other, to make other, to be aggressive towards other. We're also rigged to um, be empathetic. And more and more science is coming out that's really interesting on how, it's not just humans, it's all sorts of other mammals that are absolutely designed for reproductive you know, advantage to um, be able to tell what's going on in others, to be empathetic. I'll read you, um, Rich Hansen um, writes this. He says, In the long march from tiny sponges in the ancient seas to crabs and spiders, dinosaurs and lizards and birds, squirrels and dogs and other mammals and primates and humankind, It was an enormous aid to survival to get better and better at forming an inkling of the state of mind of others of their species, for mating, for competition and cooperation. It also helped to have some sense of the focus and attention and arousal of both predators and prey. In short, our ancient ancestors evolved in part through developing increasingly sophisticated capacities for forming a kind of model in their own mind and therefore their brain, of the internal state of other animals. The ability to do so conferred reproductive benefits through enabling better response to threats, opportunities, and care of their young. So in a very physical way, we evolve these limbic systems, 
and we evolved these mirror neurons, as they describe them, that light up when we see another person doing something. Like if somebody drops something on their foot, we can feel what it's like. Or if somebody's tasting something, there's some part of us that goes, ah, you know, we know that experience. When very, very young children hear another child cry, they start crying. There's an emotional contagion. We know the power of watching some uh, very moving movie with a group of people versus alone. There's some limbic field of resonance that happens where we pick up on each other. We've got this capacity. By the way, we're going to have a whole day long on the science. It's called the Neurodharma of Love. Like the whole science of love, we're doing it in June and you're all invited. Uh, Rich and one other scientist and myself are going to do it. So, there is huge suffering when there's empathic breakdown. We have this capacity to tune in and to be tuned into, and when there's a breakdown, it hurts. And we all know that when we feel misunderstood or betrayed or abused or whatever, there's a breakdown. And then what happens is that we get more caught in this trance of separate self, other out there, and the whole biochemistry of aggression revs up. And we get really trapped. We lose our capacity to see empathy, to feel empathy. So the big question is, when we're snagged in the biochemistry of aggression, when we're in that trance of, I'm here, others out there, they have hurt me, they're threatening me, how do we begin to intelligently make sense of our anger, do what we need to do, but re-arrive at an enlarged state of being that can sense our shared identity. Because the hope of the earth is that we can enlarge our sense of being from this self-identity to a sense of belonging to the globe. That's the hope. So the first trick is when we're wounded, when somebody has hurt us, that we can't like hopscotch into some fake kind of forgiveness and, and we can't immediately say, oh, they're suffering beings, you know. It, you can't make a leap. There's a sequence of attentional steps that bring us from being at war to widening the circle of our sense of belonging. And the first step is to honor that we have both wolves in us, that it's not our fault that the aggression and the anger is there. That's the first step. The second step is then to sense what's going on inside us that's so hurt, so we can actually take care of the place in us that's hurt. I think my best way of of describing this movement from aggression to empathy is um, a personal story that's very, very recent and that I'm still working with. So you'll hear that as I describe it that a person I've known for a number of years, we've had rounds of of tension and usually the the drama is, and the way it takes shape is she's very, very critical of me, of how I teach, of my personality. She just has a lot of criticisms and I don't seem to meet her and respond to her in a way that satisfies her around her critiques. So recently she emailed me a question, I responded, and then she wrote back to me again, you know, 
full page, single space of why my response did not reflect a real understanding of the Dharma, how I was wrong and needed to be. And I'm not saying this to get you to go, oh, Tara, how could somebody do that? Because that's not where it's at, although that's what I thought. <laughs> I don't want you to think that. <laughs> I, so I get angry. So I get, thank you. <laughs> I'm sharing this on purpose because I feel like this is really, really hard when we, you know, there's that saying that forgiveness, everyone thinks it's a great idea until we have something to forgive, you know? So this is hard, you know, whether it's we feel offended or the feelings I'm having about what's happening in Tibet or how I've been feeling about Burma or every, and every continent, the enormity of what's going on, and then I can look close into right here the huge suffering of racism and sexism and um, all the biases that we live with that really create pain. So it's real and it's hard to wake up out of. So I got angry, I got really angry and, and ran all my stories of once again she's projecting bad mother onto me and I'm having to take a lot of time dealing with it and let's see what else did I think. <laughs> oh yeah, she's just trying to look for a reason to attack me and put me down um, and so I ran that and of course I got into my rightness and felt more anger and more divided and didn't like myself it's like I could be right and not like myself you know that feeling? It's kind of snitty and... anyway so that's always for me the suffering always tells me okay, that's not the biggest place to relate from and so I'd pause and this has been happening over the last handful of days I have to keep pausing when the stories go and the first thing I need to do when I pause and I'm feeling really angry is to forgive the anger in other words, not to make myself wrong for having this natural weather system arise any more than if it was stormy outside and again I say that because it's not a small deal we don't we might feel right but we somewhere or other don't feel good about ourselves when we're angry it's not such a spiritual thing so to speak but that's not true so I have to very authentically forgive the anger like okay, this, so it's, this is what's happening and what's interesting is when I can forgive my anger there's a little softening towards this other person because I get that she's just responding from conditioning she can't help either, you know where we all are so that's the first step and then to recognize the stories that keep the dividedness of right and wrong and say, okay, let's get honest what's actually am I feeling inside? and if I get in touch, you know, if I like go into what I'm feeling under that misunderstood, not appreciated, hurt you know, here's somebody I felt like I had reached out to a lot and uh, I wasn't enough, I didn't work, I wasn't being appreciated. So that's when something shifts in a biochemical way. When I can sense the vulnerability under the anger, then we're starting to move things, things start loosening. And this is the idea, we want to move, we don't want to be hardened in a state where I'm identified as self here, that person's out there, right, wrong, we want to loosen it up some. So then there's this kind of messy place of just feeling hurt and then a beginning of compassion towards that. So then, for me, the process is just bringing a lot of care. And some of you know I'll 
teach by saying just to put your hand on your heart helps to communicate to that place inside presence and care. And so that's what I do. I'll say, you know, I use that phrase that a Hawaiian healer, I learned through a Hawaiian healer, not that I had been with, I read about, um, I'm sorry, I love you. And I shared that here. And I'm sorry doesn't mean I apologize. It means I'm sorry about the suffering. I'm sorry, there's sorrow about this. And I care about this. So I developed this kind of field of caring towards that place in me which feels hurt. And there's a natural way in which that self-compassion then can begin to include this other person and get that nobody causes suffering, nobody acts out unless they're suffering. Never happens. That there's a real suffering in there. And if I can begin to feel into what is she really needing? You know, where's the unmet need there? Then I have opened from aggression to empathy. Now it's challenging, and I want to say this, that when we're in ongoing relationships where it keeps happening, the truth is we have to keep on doing the same process. But that's what the spiritual path is anyway, a constant process of recognizing the stuckness where we've contracted and having the courage to open, let go of the armor, open to what's here, and relax into a larger space over and over. And sometimes that plays out in our immediate relationships. And our habit is to think of they're a problem, but they're actually perfectly designed to wake up our hearts in exactly the way our hearts need to wake up. Like this heart needs to face exactly this piece, this vulnerability. I hope that's helpful to hear that particular version and to say that there's different levels of wounds and anger and that um, sometimes it's not so so deep and we can do it on our own, this process of self-compassion and then opening. Other times the wound is horrendous and we need to do that process of being with, with others to make it safe, to remind us that there is enough love that we can hold ourselves with. And so this is where affinity groups and affiliations, smaller affiliations, actually serve awakening. If we have a therapist, and that's our little tribe of the moment, or a healer, or a KM group, that's the spiritual friends group, or an affinity KM group, that understands our particular version of suffering, that understands it and is committed to widening the circles of identification but first lets us be right where we are, that can give us exactly the resources we need to hold with compassion the hurt that's here and then begin to include the others. And I purposely bring this up because in our spiritual community here, one of the most powerful and, and wonderful things happening is in our affinity groups, our people of color affinity group, our GBLTQ affinity group, where there's really a kind of a container that's safe, that understands, that allows for a kind of waking up within a group of like-minded people with a similar sense of, oh, I get this wound. And in that waking up it becomes possible to widen the circles. Every one of us gets 
trapped and forgets what's it like to be in another person's circumstances. And we really can't be free and awake until we care enough about sensing our belonging to, to each other and to all beings that we bother to find out what it's like for others, that we bother to find out. So first we have to open to where we're reacting to in ourselves and then widen it. It's a real challenge because we have such a reflex when we're hurt, just like I'm having a reflex around what's happening to Bet to be to have blame and anger and, and to, it's easier to be angry than to feel the sorrow. It's easier to be angry. There's a um, story I tell sometimes, some of you have heard it, um, of an African tribe that, that has a teaching about forgiveness and the, base, the, the essence of the teaching is that vengeance is a lazy form of grief. Isn't that good? Vengeance is a lazy form of grief. Now you could say it's also a lazy form of fear, of hurt. But the teaching is this, that if we stay in the state of mind of vengeance, in the aggression, we never do the inner process that actually frees and heals us. In other words, we're not forgiving for the sake of being a good spiritual person or even for the other person. It's for our own freedom. It's our own freedom. Now I get the question a lot that don't we need to be angry to act? Any of you have that question? <laughs> I have that question. Sometimes because I, I find in myself it's not until I get really riled up that I say, I'm you know, going to do something. And anger, again, it's, you know, part of our evolutionary design that impels us to action. It's like it perceives violation, something's in the way, something's life-threatening, act. And so it's an intelligent energy. What's not intelligent is to keep believing the stories of badness and wrongness. It's critical that we tease out, and this is wise discernment, when there has been a violation that we tease out the actuality of, oh, I am discerning that this person has done this and it's causing injury, to the judgment, this person's bad, this person's wrong, I hate. So that inquiry is what can really inform us in terms of our action in the world, that we need to act, we need to create boundaries, we need to protest, we need to speak truth. But whether we're speaking it from a place of hatred or from a place of caring determines the whole evolution of our planet. Let me say again about... Uh, I received some email about Tibet from a woman that uh, her friend is married to one of the Lama's secretaries, so she's right in there kind of watching what's going on and reporting out and described in this email photos of bodies that eyewitnesses say had been shot by Chinese police and they were put on a CD and the CD was displayed on this large TV on the steps in front of a temple. 
So seven robed monks sat in front of the screen and just started praying. And so these images of bloodied, mangled bodies are going through and these seven monks are just sitting there and praying and they were joined by 5,000 people, 5,000 people that were sitting there and joined in prayer. One monk described how he saw the body of his cousin, he didn't know it had been killed and they just sitting there in prayer. This woman described one of the responses. She says, Tibetans seem to be able to hold without contradiction many different ways of expressing their grief and their concern and their solidarity with the people in Tibet. And they can wave banners and shout and they can sit and pray. And by the way, we need to speak and we need to pray. It's not like there's a right or wrong way, but it's the quality of our heart. Are we bringing more hatred to hatred? So she told about one of the demonstrations that happened last week that I wanted to tell you about in Tibet. And this was organized by the monks of the Buddhist dialectic school and they didn't have face paint, a lot of the demonstrators had. No red bandanas, no handmade placards reading shame on China. They shaved their heads clean, they put on outer yellow robe, normally only worn for religious teachings, and walked slowly, heads down, single file, through the town, chanting the refuge prayer, Buddham, Saranam, Gachami, which means just taking refuge in truth over and over again, refuge in love, refuge in truth, refuge in community. And a reporter asked the monks why they were wearing yellow and one monk said, we're monks but we're also human beings and we're not immune to anger. Wearing the yellow helps us remember not to get identified, to be mindful so we can act but not be caught. That's the possibility. So there they are, they're doing their walk chanting and at this intersection they met up with a few thousand demonstrators that were led by really angry young men with Tibetan flags draped around their shoulders shouting anti-Chinese slogans and punching their fists into the air. So here's these two groups meeting and the monks were walking and chanting and at the point where they met the demonstrators fell silent and stood aside to let the monks pass forming two lines on either side of the street and they brought their palms together at their heart and they bowed their heads and then many began to cry. In other words, they're angry, but underneath the anger there's this deep mourning for the people that have just been killed, but also for the, the decades and decades and decades of watching their country and their culture be violated. So they began to cry. And after the monks had passed, many of the demonstrators picked up their flags and placards and fell in behind them chanting, the same slogan, may I free this heart, may that serve the ending of suffering of all beings. So I tell you this because it's just an expression of what's possible, that um, this is a demonstration in one level of violation but every day we have our own reactions what we'll end tonight with is a chance for you to say well in my life where is there some dividedness where have I pushed someone out of my heart and then we can sense can we pause and even if there's not like this embracing and forgiving can we pause and begin to sense the possibility 
of instead of reacting coming home to a deeper and wiser place in us can we free ourselves in that way the path of an undivided heart begins with a kind of longing that we don't want to be at war anymore with anyone and that and the more you wake up the more anybody you're at odds with it feels like oh i'm not home something's not in sync this isn't really who i am there's a sense of that 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 we're really at home and you know it in the moments where you're feeling open hearted where there's just nobody pushed away where there's a real alive sense of connection a certain Bektashi dervish was respected for his piety and his appearance of virtue and when anybody asked him how he had become so holy he always had this answer I know what is in the Quran." one day he had just given this reply to an acquirer in a coffee house when an imbecile asked well okay what gives what's in the Quran?" and the response said the Bhaktashi was in the Quran there are two pressed flowers and a letter from my friend Abdullah it is the spiritual path it is the spiritual path how we are in every relationship and it's not like we love one person and it's okay to wanting to hurt or push away another hearts don't just, you know, all of a sudden, you know, we're free and open and then, you know, it's like we keep that armoring we keep that armoring there's a, a story of a Hasidic rabbi and he asked his pupils how they could tell when night had ended and the day had begun he said, for that's the time for holy prayer so the, that was the question and one said, well, is it when you can see an animal in the distance and tell whether it's a sheep or a dog? no, answered the rabbi is it when you can clearly see the lines on your own palm? nope is it when you can look at a tree in the distance and tell if it's a fig or pear tree? no, answered the rabbi each time then what is it the pupils demanded? it is when you can look on the face of any man or woman and see that they are your sister or brother until then it is still night so I began by describing the two wolves and we don't jump to seeing everybody as our sister or brother there's a natural reaction of us and them and to be honest with it to to share with each other about how it happens to um, be forgiving about it that is absolutely the gateway to waking up our hearts and then to begin to have the courage to include where we're hurt include and see what does that person need how are they hurt it's critical to pause if we don't pause we tumble into an ever increasing kind of escalation of violence we get trapped so let's take a, let's take a few moments together and um, try this on to see in your life where there might be the possibility of including and as, as you know with these this is a pretty short meditation and just to give you a taste and you can explore it more on your own but begin with a pause right here and just let yourself 
really come back right into this moment just to feel your breath and give yourself permission to relax a little more Feel your heart. Sense the mood of your heart right now. And your intention, your intention to have an undivided heart, to include life with care. just to feel the sincerity of wanting to wake up this heart. It's the way Hafiz puts it, he says, ask the friend for love, ask him again, for I have heard that every heart will get what it asks for most. So we can honor the walls, we can sense, okay, so where is their dividedness? Where is their aggression? Where am I right now in my life in some way creating distance, pushing someone out of my heart? So you might choose a place where you'd like to feel a little more openness. and sense, as you let someone come to mind, sense the realness of wanting to push them away or of your anger, your upset. So you can first honor that first wolf that this body-mind has a reaction and it's a weather system that is natural, is part of what it means to be human. So for me that meant where there was anger to forgive it, to just honestly, kindly say, forgiven, this is okay. And to let yourself sense the situation what's brought up, the anger, the dislike, the feelings of separation. And you might sense what stories you tell yourself about what's wrong, how you are wrong or that person's wrong. It's natural to blame, it's part of the way we armor ourselves. And then this is the courageous part, to be willing to feel what's underneath the story. So if you weren't continuing to tell yourself stories of what's wrong with this person, what they did was bad, what would you have to feel? What's the vulnerability, the hurt, the fear, 
the wound that's there. And take your time, and if it helps to put your hand on your own heart and just keep company with whatever is underneath, whatever that human vulnerability is. So you're offering, you're bearing witness, you're offering company and kindness to the place in you under the anger that feels misunderstood, disrespected, rejected, threatened, like you don't matter. For some, just sending a message, I care about this suffering, or I'm sorry, I love you. Or if it's hard to send that to yourself, send somebody that you know, that cares and understands with you, keeping you company. Their energy also flowing through your hand, throwing, flowing through your message to your heart. So it's as if you're really letting the love that's in this world hold the hurt place, the, the place underneath the anger. Very gentle compassion to what's here. this pause to really feel your own humanness, you can begin to include the other person now in your awareness to look and sense that person's unmet need, like what is the wounded part of that person really needing? Do they need to feel appreciated or loved, understood, safe? Always there's an unmet need. To feed the wolf of love is to include another with empathy and to forgive, or if you're not ready to forgive, to intend to open your heart, to keep paying attention to their humanity too. To feel the space in your heart that can hold this being and all beings is the pathway to peace stopping the war. I'd like to end by just reading you the words of a poet, a 13-year-old boy that some of you might remember from this area, Matty Stepanek. And um, he's died since he wrote this of muscular dystrophy. But he wrote this the day after 9-11. So if there was ever a time that there was a sense of violation and reaction, a sense of an us and a them, that was the time. So this is, this is the words that he wrote. He said, We need to stop. Just stop. Stop for a moment. 
before anybody says or does anything that may hurt anyone else. We need to be silent, just silent, silent for a moment before the future slips away into ashes and dust. Stop, be silent, and notice in so many ways we are the same. And now let us pray differently yet together before there is no earth, no life, no chance for peace. So in the spirit of this 13-year-old boy and the spirit of that in us which knows that we really, really cherish loving, that we cherish this life, we'll close with a prayer together. May we stop the war. May we open to the loving presence that really is our essence and live from that presence. May all beings realize this love. May all beings touch a natural and great peace. May there be peace on earth and peace everywhere. May all beings everywhere be free. Namaste. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.